You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, and you are listening to the show where we talk about everything. Today is July 31st, 2021, and it just so happens to be my oldest son, Josiah David Mullet's 14th birthday today. Happy birthday to Josiah David Mullet. You're a fine young man. You're still growing into the man you will become, but you are already who you are, and it's such a fun thing to see. It's a fine thing to see you being formed and fashioned before our very eyes into a confident, intelligent, well-spoken, funny, charming young man. The title for today's podcast is Anti-Authority Nonconformist. And generally speaking, I think this is how a lot of people see me, or at least this is how a lot of people who have managed me over the years at various uh, workplaces have seen me. I think consistently with a few shining exceptions, I have had a lot of conflict over my working life with frontline managers. And as I try to reflect on why that is, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is in my senior year of high school when Everyone and their brother was asking me where I was going to go to college. The presumption was that I needed to go to college because I was too smart to just go into working and leave things to chance. I was too well-spoken. I was too intelligent. I was too insightful. I needed to go to college and get a degree, a piece of paper that said I was fit for bigger things. And... My response at the time was, I'm going to wait on the Lord. I want the Lord to lead and guide my life. I want whatever it is that I'm going to pursue as far as a vocation to be on God's terms. And so then the response was, well, are you going to go into the ministry? Are you you thinking about going to seminary? Are you thinking about becoming a pastor? And that caught me off guard because I'm thinking to myself, why does that, I mean... (laughs) Why do I need to be a pastor in order to serve God? I don't need to be a pastor in order to serve God. God has other purposes for people besides just full-time ministry or nothing. And the question from people might have said more about our uh, attitudes towards ministry and towards serving God with our lives than it does about how God... Uh, calls people to lives of purpose and, and ministry. It doesn't follow necessarily that you have to go to seminary and you have to become ordained and you have to go into full-time vocational ministry in order to serve God with your whole life. In fact, where I did go to college, Cedarville University, for two semesters, and also to some extent Liberty University, where I also went, for about a year, the 
idea was driven home that whatever it is that you do, whatever your hand finds to do, as Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, work heartily, do it with your might as unto the Lord. If you, for instance, feel called into the profession of nursing, and you want to become a certified nurse or a registered nurse, you can be a registered nurse to the glory of God by approaching that work with excellence, with the utmost excellence. Do that and make it in the name of Jesus that you are tending to sick people, people who are recovering, people who are hurting. Do that in the name of Jesus and let the world see, let people in the medical profession see you working hard to be excellent, to operate with integrity, to have a good attitude, to genuinely love people as you're caring for them, not just for money, not just because you can command a, a pretty good salary that way, but let them see you doing it because you love God and you love people and this is what God has called you to. If you feel called to become an engineer, electrical, mechanical, software, whatever kind of engineer, let people in that sphere see you working diligently to make sure that you double, triple check all of the numbers and the figures. All of your plans are carried out with integrity, are communicated with respect. You humbly ask questions of the people you are working with and consulting and contracting to perform the work. But so also... Whatever you find to do without a college degree. And so the risky business I have found consistently is in privately educating myself, pursuing an ongoing education, a lifelong education, reading, writing, now podcasting as we speak, working diligently day in and day out every day over years and years and years to try to become a better communicator, to become more organized, to manage my time, manage my resources, manage my attention, manage my relationships in a way that pleases the Lord in light of his word, led by his spirit. As I do that, one of the hazards I run into is that I come up with my own ideas. I have my own idea about how things should be done. And all too often, this bipolar, false dichotomy set of options that is put before people in our society says to people who don't go to college, you're a goof. No need to take life too, too seriously along these certain lines because you have to have a certificate. You have to have a diploma to say you know so much. Or you've got to have decades of experience, or fill in the blank. You have to have a title. When we chase titles and decades of experience and diplomas, and we mistake those things for competence, for wisdom, for effectiveness, what do we do with somebody who shows up and says, hey, I've got an idea. 
and I've come to it in an original way along a different line. Here's how I'm going about it. And it is successful. It's getting it done. Well, our metrics don't see that. Well, it's because your metrics aren't measuring for that. You're not looking in that direction. That's why your metrics don't see it. Well, you know what? Why don't you just do what you're told? Be quiet. We'll tell you what you need to do. We know. The most hands-off managers, supervisors, organizations I've worked with, I have been the most successful in. When it, it, it is when I start to be uh, fine-tuned on every little thing because my way of doing something is not readily understood. Uh, that's when there's consistently conflict. And that conflict comes where somebody breaks in and says, well, you need to do it this way because everybody else is doing it this way. Well, yeah, but (laughs) you're challenging my whole identity here to say I need to do this thing the way that everybody else is doing it just because everybody else is doing it that way. You're challenging my whole paradigm. And when that challenge comes... Either A, without any attention being paid, apparently, to why I'm doing this thing the way that I'm doing it, or whether the way that I'm doing it is perhaps better than the way other people are doing it, or what the benefits might be of doing it my way. When the question is not asked, or if the information, the explanation on my part is offered but ignored dismissed out of hand because fairness, because perception, because people don't understand why you're doing things the way that you're doing them. Whatever the effect, whatever the results, we can't have everybody just doing whatever they want. That gulls me. That is a major pet peeve of mine. I mean, you think about it. Think with me for just a second. On my father's side, for hundreds of years, as far back as I know, as far back as my research goes, the mullets came from Switzerland. And at least the whole time they were here in America, they were Mennonites. They were probably Mennonites in the old country as well. They were probably Mennonites in Switzerland. But I don't have a lot of evidence. And It's not shocking that I don't have a lot of evidence for that because Mennonites got persecution from both the Reformed Protestant groups and the Roman Catholics because they weren't either. They weren't the Roman Catholics. They weren't the Reformed. And so they got it from both ends. And because they didn't believe in defending themselves physically, they very often were pushed to the margins of society and were persecuted. Now, I'm not a Mennonite, but you can't have hundreds of years of heritage like that and not have certain attitudes, certain ways of thinking, certain ways of relating come down through the generations to you. You just can't. And so in my case, I come by a certain kind of nonconformity, honestly, through my dad's side and through the Mennonite heritage. And a lot of that is driven by 
something that is in the New Testament where we read, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many parts in one body and all the body's parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually parts of one another. However, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use them properly. If prophecy in proportion to one's faith if service in the act of serving, or the one who teaches in the act of teaching, or the one who exhorts in the work of exhortation, the one who gives with generosity, the one who is in leadership with diligence, the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I look at this, and I grow up being told this day in and day out. And not only do I come from a long line of Mennonites on my dad's side, I come from Scots-Irish stock on my mom's side. The Scots-Irish, for their entire recorded history, have been opposed to outside authority coming in and trying to usurp the proper authority, which the Scots maintain is theirs God-given. The outsized influence of Scots-Irish in the American colonies prior to the Revolution, prior to the War of Independence, is no small part of why there was a Declaration of Independence, why there was a War of Independence, why there was a Revolutionary War, because those attitudes from Scotland made their way across the Atlantic with the colonists who came from Scotland. And when the British tried to arbitrarily govern without representation, without regard to the peculiar circumstances and needs of the colonists, there was a refusal to endure that. So on my mom's side, I come from a certain measure of anti-authority, non-conformist sentiment. And even though I'm not 100% Scots-Irish, my mom's influence, my grandmother Renew's influence, maiden name McFarland, that comes through the generations. And it says something to me in the way that I'm raised, in the way that I grow up thinking about myself and about my work situation and about society around me. And then you add on top of that, on top of the wedding of these two traditions of nonconformity, the fact that I'm homeschooled. And I think the fact that I was homeschooled is partly an outgrowth of where my parents came from, their pedigree, their lineage. It was in their DNA, and then you combine those strains of thought and sentiment. And it's obvious in the state of public education being such as it is, we're going to homeschool. So I grow up homeschooled. And what do I hear for my entire childhood? Don't be like everybody else. Don't do what everybody else is doing. Don't follow the crowd. That whole bit about if everybody was jumping off of a cliff to their death, would you do it too? That was the sentiment I was raised with day in and day out. Sometimes to a fault. Sometimes with things that were just like, ah, this is nothing. 
this is fine. There's nothing bad about what everybody's doing in this regard. But even there, I think there was a reluctance on my dad's part, especially to see me going along with the crowd on trivial things because it might get to be too easy to go along with the crowd on the really important things too. And you can train yourself to be more of a nonconformist in the really, really important things if you reserve yourself on some of the trivial things too, just for practice, like it, like target practice. But I grow up being homeschooled, and then I get to my high school year, and I've got everybody saying, well, you need to go to college because that's what everybody does. That's how successful people become successful, is they do what everybody else is doing, right? Well, not quite, or so I reasoned. And what happened when I stepped out and said, well, that can be what everybody else is doing, but that doesn't make it wise, it doesn't make it necessary, it doesn't make it right. A lot of people in high school literally told me and my now wife, you're never going to amount to anything. You're not going to be successful. You are almost sinning against God to have the mind that you do, to have the verbal ability that you do, to be handsome, well-spoken, presenting well, charming, and not go to college. You are throwing away your potential, your God-given potential, and you're not being a good steward of it. And the irony was lost on them that the whole reason why I was reluctant to go to college was because I don't feel the Lord calling me along that line. I'm waiting on the Lord to call me where he will. And he hasn't called me in that direction. When he calls me in a direction, that is the direction, by God's grace, I will go. But by then, those folks had turned their back on me, discounted me, written me off. They weren't listening to anything more I had to say because I wasn't doing what everybody else was doing. Now, lo and behold, it took years, but eventually my instincts were proven correct, prescient even. Hey, wait a second. How expensive is college? How much debt should you load up young people with early in their lives when they're just getting a start? Is it really worth it? Do we need this many people with college degrees? Do you need a college degree to do this job? Or have we drunk the Kool-Aid put out in part by people with degrees to try and flatter themselves, put out in part by the university systems so that they can make themselves wealthy and important? Do you really need a PhD in order to do things which for hundreds and thousands of years, for all of human history, people have been able to do without going to four, six, eight years of university for $20,000 a year to learn how to do. The problem now, though, is that the people who did that kind of track, who did go and get their four-year, six-year degree, who delayed getting married and having kids, they... A lot of them, because they were doing what everybody else was doing and flying under the radar, they worked themselves into positions of authority, a lot of them. Or at least folks know what to do with them. That's the benefit of doing what everybody else is doing. You don't stand out. You don't make waves. You don't get in trouble. You don't threaten anybody 
by trying something new and different. You don't confuse them. They don't have to think as hard if you just do what everybody else is doing because they know what to expect. If you're trying to do something special, you're trying to do something innovative, something fresh, something that might be better, but it isn't what everybody else is doing. There's a lot of critics out there who are quick to try to take the air out of your tires, to clip your wings, to cut you down to size. The problem I have when I run into a situation where someone is trying to do that with me is that I am disinclined to have my wings clipped with regards to being a nonconformist. Now, if there is some particular thing where I need to do this thing like everybody else is doing it, then yes. Okay, great, team player. But therein lies another problem. I run into another problem when I start trying to reason with the person who's telling me to do this like everybody else is doing. Even as I'm maintaining, hey, wait a second, I found a better way around this. I found a better way to do this. Can I show you? When I have been in those situations in years past, sometimes I have not anticipated the defensive and even vengeful reaction I would get from the powers that be when I do that, when I say that. Sometimes I have tried to take that line and say, hey, wait a second, I think I found a better way to do this. Let me show you. And I've been completely blindsided. Like a a haymaker punch when you're not looking. And next thing I know, I'm getting written up. I'm getting terminated. Or I'm getting squelched to the point that I'm completely demoralized. Why did I get... The screws tightened on me. Should I have? Why try? Nobody else is trying. Everybody else is happy not trying. I can't be happy not trying. So not only am I not trying like everybody else is not trying, but now I stand out in a different way because I'm pissed. I'm pissed off. And I'm frustrated because it's not in my DNA to be a conformist for conformity's sake. It's not in my DNA to be a conformist just to make the people around me comfortable. It makes me extraordinarily uncomfortable, like the world is off. Once somebody says, you have to do what everybody else is doing just because everybody else is doing it. Well, wait a second. I might have found a better way to do this. I don't care. Just do what you're told. You do what I tell you to do. I say jump. You say how high. That's the wrong tact with me. But herein lies a major problem. A young person my age who's gone to six years, eight years of college, they've got a position of authority. They command respect with that little piece of paper. That's all it takes. They could forge that piece of paper and conduct themselves exactly the same way that I do. But if they're dishonest and I'm honest, and I carry myself the way that I do without that piece of paper. They carry, the way, they carry themselves the way that they carry themselves with that piece of paper. Guess who gets smooth sailing and guess who gets choppy waters? They're allowed to breeze into the room telling everybody how it's going to be. 
and I'm not even allowed to manage myself. So to some extent, the folks who were trying to give me counsel in high school had a point. They saw perhaps the potential for these little conflicts cropping up again and again, and maybe they wanted to spare me the heartache, stress, frustration. You know, I just had a conversation, a long conversation with my cousin Micah. Micah has been invaluable to me in just being a sounding board over the years. We've collaborated in writing, and then lo and behold, you get to talking about life in general when you're trying to talk about writing and how to write something better. And so I was asking him advice here last night with regards to work, with regards to career goals, with regards to um, you know opportunities, situations, past, present, future, potentially for misunderstanding or for success. Because at a certain point, me having the analytical technician's mind that I do, being a student of history and life and reading a lot of biographies of great men who sometimes had setbacks, sometimes uh, didn't get where they were trying to go or where they ended up in the end on the first go and on the first try. I'm talking with him and this is what he tells me. He says, this is not a criticism, but you really need to be in management. Your personality, your mindset, your attitude, your outlook, you really ought to be setting your sights on management. You're not going to be happy or content. You're not going to fit in. I mean, that's, that's really what it boils down to. You're not going to fit in anywhere that you are working until you have worked yourself into a management position. And you, you would make a good manager. But the problem comes where consistently you have to tone it down. You have to play your cards close to your chest when you have a vision for how things could go and you have some innovative ideas and you don't like to see things mismanaged or overlooked. You don't like to see situations that you could handle handled in a way that you disagree with. And the only thing for it is going to be for you to put yourself in a position or find yourself in a position, God willing, in which you're able to try your ideas out. And you have good ideas. You do. You're well-read. You've studied these things. But you're always getting into conflict with management because they have a certain vision. And if you see the problems in their vision, you let them know. And next thing you know, you are on their bad side. You're in trouble. And I have to I have I have to admit it, he's got a point. Um, you know, my nine years of work in oil and gas have been very much marked by freedom, freedom of movement, to start when I please, to end when I please. Emergencies uh as the exception, of course, sites down, something's spilled or customer, client, coworker calls you up and says, hey, we need you to get out here right now. 
this piece of equipment is not working. It's down until you get here and troubleshoot it. Come quick. Aside from that, I've been able to come and go as I please, so long as the work gets done. And the work does get done. When I am the one doing it, I maximize my liberty to the hilt in a productive way. I get creative with it in a way that a lot of people who just flat don't care, don't. The people who don't care, who are conformists, and they're conformists so that they don't stick out, so they don't draw attention to themselves, so they can get by with bending the rules, they can get by with doing less than what they really needed to be doing because they're just there to collect a paycheck. They're not necessarily there to work in an excellent way with integrity. I get things done better than those folks, but I draw attention. And sometimes the attention that I draw is drawn by my doing things differently, people not knowing what to do with that. Sometimes you get complainers who lack imagination, who lack patience, who don't look closely enough to see the fruits and they object on the basis of fairness. Well, it's not fair that you get to do things differently than everybody else. Okay, Karl Marx. Okay, Antonio Gramsci. Okay, Bernie Sanders. Let's treat everybody equally. Equity, right? Socialism, right? Let's all get paid the same. How about the CEO of the company gets paid the same as we do? No? No, you, you don't like that idea? How about you call up our vice presidents and ask them what they're doing today. What are they working on? As if they wouldn't be working on anything if you didn't call them up. As if you're checking up on them because you don't trust that they're going to work on anything productive unless you're on them like white on rice. How about the next time we bring in an engineering firm to design a system for us, you nitpick every little thing because they're not doing this the same way that the folks who come to site to empty our porta potties do things. Why aren't you dressed the same way as the guys that come in and service our porta john? See what they say. Do you want to get that level of service? That's what you're going to get if you try to get everybody to abide by the same rules. And I realize you get bad actors. You get bad actors who are doing things differently and they stick out and they draw your attention by being different and they are legitimately doing things that they ought not to do and not doing the things that they ought to do and you have to correct that. But for God's sakes, look closely enough to tell whether in fact the work is getting done, what work is getting done also, why? What is the big picture here? What is the big picture if you only have conformists, if you only have yes men? What's the big picture look like long term? No innovation, no excellence, no creativity, no joy. That is not a work situation I can be successful in. It is not in my DNA. It is not what I want. Now, the flip side is, and this is a big part of why I've been in oil and gas for nine years, over nine years now, 
The flip side is, if there is freedom to innovate, to be creative, if there's a respect which says, tell me what you're working on. Can I help you in any way? Oh, hey, that was a really good idea. Hey, I like how you handled that situation there. Kudos. Well done. That helps to offset when there is criticism or a suspicion that may be well-founded. I mean, that's the thing about innovation and being creative is you don't always improve the process the first time around. But if you keep tweaking and people can have the patience to let you get there, at the end, you come up with something better. Read Daniel Coyle's The Talent Code. He talks about something called deep practice. And what deep practice is, is all of the most world-class people in any given field of pursuit, they have this routine where they engage in short bursts. And then they pull back a little bit, evaluate, adjust their approach, their routine, their task, execution, what have you, re-engage. Then pull back, reevaluate, adjust again, re-engage. And do that over and 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 over again. And at a certain point, they become world-class. Now, if you don't engage in the first place, or if you engage without engaging your brain, you engage your hands because that's all you are. You're just a body. You're a tool. You're a human resource. But when we say human, what we mean is something less than the whole person. We don't mean your mind, your heart, your soul, and your body. We just mean your body. You show up, and we tell you what to do, and you do it, and you don't question, and you don't talk back. You do what we tell you to do. You don't talk back. That's not in my DNA. And to be honest, too, I mean, that's part of why I'm in automation. That's part of why I'm in instrumentation is because there's so much to learn. There's so much creativity that can take place. And if you can go deep enough in the programming and in the configuring and in the designing and in the installation, and you can do these things excellently, it has a long-term effect for the good which greatly benefits organizations. Now, if it's sloppy, if the execution is sloppy, installation was poor, the materials were poor, it wasn't configured properly, then it breaks down. It doesn't work. It doesn't work consistently, and it's a huge headache. But you have to have people working on those kinds of systems who can get creative with it, who can get the thing to work in a way that it is not working. If the whole normalcy thing is not what it's been advertised as. It's not all it's cracked up to be. If normal standard fare isn't working, then maybe what you need is somebody who's not quite so normal to shake it up, to point out this, 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 and this. It's in the wrong spot. Not for the sake of being critical, but for the sake of improving. And that's a two-way street, right? I can benefit from hearing that kind of talk, just like I can benefit others by engaging in that kind of talk when it's respectful, when it's 
appropriate. But I think Mike is right. I think he's correct. I can't pretend to know how to get from here to there. But I think part of the way that I get from here to there is in talking through what is the situation as it stands right now. I mean, there can be a great need, but if there's not the perception of a need in these regards, then good luck selling it. If you have an imagination and you come up with this big audacious goal, this big audacious idea that's very different, and you're trying to sell it to somebody who's not picking up what you're putting down, you might have to sell those ideas somewhere else. You might have to put them on the shelf. And I think part of my struggle, part of my continuous improvement for my own approach tactically is being willing to put the innovation on the shelf and conform in small bursts so as to hang on long enough to be able to actually prove the quality of my way of doing things or my attitude or my mindset. It seems like I always hit this roadblock when I start getting frustrated. And then my frustration and my desire to be a nonconformist and to innovate, those being combined together, I get into conflict with people. And once they're trying to discipline me just because I'm frustrated that I had an innovative idea and I had to put it back on the shelf without it even being given a hearing, really, truly, then it's a spiral. It's a death spiral. The more they're trying to discipline me for having been frustrated at being dismissed with a quality idea, the more misunderstood I feel, the more frustrated and demoralized I feel, and the more I, in turn, get increasing conflict and increasing discipline and increasing frustration reaches terminal velocity at a certain point, and I leave orbit. So what do you do with that, right? I mean, to be clear, I'm not an anti-authority nonconformist in everything, but I do think that society by and large, American society by and large, is flirting with socialism and communism because... Most of the folks are conforming to a very dangerous attitude with regards to authority. And so I am opposed to that. And consistently, as consistently as I can, I try to voice my opposition. That's what I'm doing with the podcast thing. Well, that's dangerous, right? Me recording this episode is dangerous. But so also is everybody engaging in mindless conformity. So also is an attitude towards authority, which is so unquestioning that we become a communist hellhole in this country. If you can't ever question authority and say, hey, wait a second, does that work? Is that a good idea? Is that true? Is it helpful? If as a matter of course, asking those questions provokes wrath, brings the lash, my concern, my very real concern My enduring concern is that we will all go together to a dark place that we don't want to be. It doesn't get easier to be 
a nonconformist. It gets harder to be a nonconformist if society becomes totalitarian, authoritarian in nature. And you can say, well, hey, I think you're overthinking this, making too much of it. Am I, though? Am I overthinking it or are most folks underthinking it? Am I making too much of this or are most people making too little of it? I guess it remains to be seen. At a certain point, you do have to put the analysis on the back burner and trust the good Lord. At a certain point, you have to say, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where this is going. I'm not entirely sure what to do next. I'm not entirely sure what to prepare for. I'm not entirely sure how to orient myself and remain not only blameless, but pragmatically safe, prudent. The speed limit in Montana when I was a kid was safe and prudent. Literally, there was no speed limit. Safe and prudent. And then you get people coming out with Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Porsches and going 200 miles an hour. And next thing you know, there's a speed limit because every other state has a speed limit. Well, yeah, but that's dumb. So that's where I come from. I come from Montana, safe and prudent. And I think that society benefits from not trying to shave off my square edges to fit me through a round hole. I think society benefits from having somebody from a nonconformist background come in and in all sincerity, from a place of conviction, asking, why are you doing this the way that you're doing it? You guys want to heap criticism on me because I'm doing it differently than you all are doing it. How about let's turn that around? How about I start doing quality control on why you all are doing it the way that you're doing it? That thought hasn't occurred to you, but that just shows how much into conformity and blindly following authority, we have lapsed. I was listening to a Doug Wilson podcast earlier this week, something like a yellow custard with a a little green around the edges or something like that. And he was talking about how dishonest the media is, how corrupt our government has become, we're being routinely day in, day out, all day, every day, lied to, manipulated, misled. We may not know what the truth is about a given situation, like the COVID situation. We may not know for sure where it came from or how involved Dr. Fauci was or was not in the gain-of-function research. We may or may not know for sure how much fraud there was in the 2020 election and whether it was enough fraud to actually give the White House to Joseph R. Biden. But one thing we do know for sure is that we're being lied to. We may not know for sure the truth, but we do know for sure that we're being lied to, and that's the truth. He talks about how it would be silly for us to say, If the government, if Joe Biden tomorrow signs an executive order saying that every Tuesday we all have to wear blue baseball caps, 
we could say, well, that's silly. Why are you telling us all we have to wear blue baseball caps? And he could say, it's in the interest of fairness. It's in the interest of everybody being treated equally. Everybody has to get used to this idea that we're all the same. We all need to wear blue baseball caps on Tuesday, all day Tuesday, have to do it. Everybody, executive order, president, do it, do it, do it, just do it. Now, someone, as Doug Wilson's thought exercise goes, someone could hear about that and they could say, well, wait a second, I have a religious liberty exemption. My religion says I cannot wear blue baseball caps at all, ever. I can't wear the color blue, so I can't abide by this. Well, (laughs) how far does that go, right? We start looking through your family photos on Facebook, and we realize you wear blue pretty often. You're making that up. That's not actually true. That's not actually the real reason. Oh, shoot. Yeah, I was making that up. Well, now you're just embarrassed. So Wilson advises a different line of attack, which is to say, I'm a Christian, and as a Christian, I believe that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Governments are instituted among men to preserve these rights, not to trample on them. When government becomes destructive of these rights, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish their form of government until it is more perfectly protecting and preserving their rights, their God-given rights. The argument for why I'm not going to wear blue baseball caps every Tuesday just because Joe Biden signed an executive order just to assert dominance, just to prove to all of us that he's in charge, he wears the pants now, he's in control, he's going to say jump, and we're going to say how high, just so he can put us through the paces, just so he can prove to us and everybody that he's in control. The argument against abiding by that, conforming to that, goes a little something like this. I am not a slave. I am a free man. You're trying to make me your slave. I will not be your slave. Thanks for playing. No, there's no practical utility to this. This is all about you on an ego trip trying to assert dominance. If I embrace what you're doing on principle, what sort of a man am I on the other end? Do I have self-respect? Do I have self-confidence? Do I have your respect? Do I have the respect of my peers anymore? In other words, what do I lose in this exchange, even as you gain something? I lose the very same thing that you are stealing from me and which you are gaining, which is power. And I need that power. And it rightfully belongs to me. And if not, make a convincing argument, why not? Instead of just pulling rank, instead of just saying, I'm the president. I have a pen and a phone. Well, wait a second. We also have a constitution. If there's no point to having a constitution, if the words on the paper are not binding in any respect, then what the hell is the point of having the piece of paper? And if those words are not binding, then why is it that when you write a little executive order, that's binding? It's arbitrary will to power. It's totalitarianism. It's tyranny. 
tyranny comes in all forms. Sometimes it comes in the form of everybody's got to wear a blue baseball cap on Tuesdays. Sometimes it comes in the form of mask mandates, vaccine mandates. I'm sorry, but I reject the assertion that my responsibility is just to blindly, uncritically do whatever I'm told. And one of the consequences of my rejecting that on principle as part of a long, rich tradition of nonconformity to God's glory, one of the consequences is I sometimes lose my job. I sometimes lose friendships. I sometimes miss out on opportunities. I may someday lose my life, for all I know. I may someday be arrested. God only knows. But maybe that's where we're supposed to be. Maybe that's where life is actually lived in a real true sense, is in trusting the good Lord that he knows what's coming. And just like Joseph, Joseph is hated by his brothers because he has a dream that someday in the future, his mother and his father and his brothers are all going to be bowing down to him. And Joseph, naive like I once was, has the temerity to tell his brothers this dream excitedly. And they, in turn, have an entirely predictable response, which is to seize him at the next opportunity and plan to kill him. Now, they whittle that down. Oh, we won't kill him. We'll throw him in this pit. Hey, wait a second. Rather than throwing him in this pit, why don't we sell him into slavery? And we'll just say that he died. He was torn to pieces by a wild animal. We'll tell Dad that when we get home. But then we'll be done with him. We'll have him off our hands. Joe, Joseph, sold into slavery, ends up rising through the ranks in his master Potiphar's house. And then, next thing you know, his integrity gets him into trouble. His master's wife wants to sleep with him, and he says, no. Now, wait a second. That's not very prudent. Everybody else would probably do that. Who do you think you are? You think you're better than everybody? You think you're too good to sleep with Potiphar's wife? He ends up being falsely accused of trying to rape her by her because she does the predictable human sinful thing. She doesn't get what she wants. She doesn't get power over him. And so she seeks to destroy him. Potiphar doesn't ask questions. The perception is, right? There's that phrase, perception. The perception is that Joseph tried to rape Potiphar's wife. And he's going to dispense with Joseph on the basis of that perception, not on the basis of his experience with Joseph, Joseph's character, Joseph's integrity. So Joseph gets thrown in prison. Joseph in prison interprets the dream of a cupbearer and a baker of Pharaoh's. They both dream dreams. One of their dreams means that that guy is going to be released in so many days and go back into service to Pharaoh. The other one, his dream means that in so many days, he's going to be put to death. So Joseph interprets this dream. The one man, sure enough, 
is put to death. The other man is released back into service to Pharaoh. And Joseph asks him to remember me to Pharaoh. I'm innocent. I'm in here on false charges. I did not do what I was accused of doing. Well, what does the guy do? He promptly forgets about Joseph until Pharaoh has a dream too, which no one can interpret. No one understands the meaning of Pharaoh's dream. But aha, I know a guy when I was in prison. I had a dream and so did the other guy. And this man in prison interpreted both of our dreams and his interpretation was correct. Send for that guy. Boom, Joseph, interpret Pharaoh's dream. Okay, only God can give me the ability to interpret your dream, but here's the interpretation from God. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Save up now the surplus, because you're going to need it. We're all going to need it in the seven years that follow the seven years of plenty. Great idea, Joseph. Let's put you in charge of that. It might just be that the best place for us to be is wherever God allowed Joseph to be. Now, Joseph incurs the wrath of his brothers. They want to kill him. They do sell him into slavery. He is thrown in prison on false charges, but God is faithful. And if that's all we have, then it's perhaps for the best. It's probably for the best if that's all we have to hang our hat on at the end of the day. That is probably the best safest, healthiest place we could possibly be. And whatever maintaining our integrity in that conviction requires, it's worth it. The kingdom of heaven is like a field that a man found some treasure in, Jesus says in the Gospels. He found treasure in that field, and he went home, and he sold everything that he had to raise the money to buy that field. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And that's all I've got for this episode. We're at an hour. I'm trying not to do this anymore, but I did it. I regret nothing. I'm a nonconformist. Let me know what you think. If you have some thoughts on this subject, if you have some good recommended reading, I mean, that's part of why I read so much in the category of psychology, management, leadership, because I'm trying to figure out how to be better at this how to be safer for my family's benefit, for my integrity to remain intact, to retain my soul. If you have some good books in this regard to recommend for me, I would kiss you for it. Uh, Or maybe not. Maybe I would just metaphorically, I would thank you. How about that? We'll keep it respectful. In any event, that's all I've got. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.